There was a, a story told, a true story, during the Great Depression of a, a man and his family who had a, a small ranch in, in West Texas, uh, and he tended sheep. That was his job. He had a, a herd of sheep. And the Depression hit, and it was very, very tough for everybody all over the country, and it reached down even to this uh, small ranch in West Texas. And uh, they went through their last bit of money. They they got rid of their last head of sheep, and, and then they were just like, well, what are we going to do next? You know, we're sitting around the table. We have nothing left. We're starving. We're in poverty. I guess this is our time. It's time for us to to go and be with the Lord. And things seemed really hopeless to these folks until there was a knock on the door. And, and the, they opened the door, and it was a geological crew from a large oil company that came to tell them some very interesting news. And it seems that their sheep were grazing over one of the most lucrative oil fields in all of West Texas. And that day, the Yates family went from poverty and starvation to uh, wealth from a, a field that produced 80,000 barrels of crude a day. It seems to me that there's a parallel in our day with Christians and the church with this sheep herder. It, it seems to me that we're uh, sometimes a lot like that, uh, that shepherd who, who had no idea of the wealth that was right underneath his nose. In, in his starvation, in, in his poverty, he was sitting right on top of riches unimagined, and he just needed to dig a little bit. In, in, in our generation, there are many today who are spiritually bankrupt, right? There are many today who are starving for true spiritual nourishment all the while looking at rabbit trails and running down all kinds of places, trying to, to find the answers when they have the answers in the Word of God. That's what's so cool about a family that moves from here all the way over to Africa, right, and says, you know what, I, I think uh, we'll go and we'll help these people have the Word of God in their own language. Isn't that pretty awesome? I mean, can you imagine what it would be like for us not to have the Word of God in our own language? But, but people are looking everywhere. They're looking for experiences to show them what true spirituality is. They're looking uh, for uh, just about anywhere you can imagine, pleasure, uh, riches, whatever, to try to find some sort of meaning in life when all the while we have with us, right, the truth of the Word of God that gives real meaning to life. Everybody's looking for a shortcut. You know, they, I've got a word from the Lord. That's the thing you hear a lot now. Somebody, i got a word from the Lord or... I just want the Lord to just zap me. You know, it's this kind of Bible study where you open your Bible and you open it up and put a finger in there and say, oh, here's the, here's the verse for me today. That's not really the way God designed it, right? He wants us to dig deep into the Word of God to let the Word of God richly dwell within us. Our generation, it seems, is more interested in shortcuts. I remember being in a uh, convenience store not too long ago and uh, they had a little rack of books, and I was just kind of thumbing through it. As you know, I like books. I'm kind of a book guy. And so I'm thumbing through this thing, not really expecting to find anything. But uh, I come across this book, and the title of the book was The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. It's a New York Times bestseller, okay? And its subtitle is A Remarkable Account of Miracles, Angels, and Life Beyond This World. And the, you know what the best part was? The author's name? Uh, the authors were Kevin and Alex. You're not going to believe this. Malarkey. I love it, by the way. Um, <laughs> 
You, you have, we're more interested in reading a book about somebody who supposedly went to heaven, uh, but all the while ignoring the one who created heaven and has us everything that we need to know right here in this book about heaven and how we are to live in light of that. But many people today are too, too wise or whatever for that, and so they, they wonder, what, what is the value of a 2,000-year-old book? You know, How can this be relevant? How can this have any impact on my life today? What good is this old, ancient book? And some may wonder that when we come to a study, like we're going to begin today and see how far the Lord takes us uh, in the book of Colossians. You know, what good could a letter written by a Jewish author about 2,000 years ago from a prison cell in Rome, what could that have to say to your life and to my life today? I mean, we live in a pretty, we're, we're not like that anymore. We have email. <laughs> we have Skype. Aren't we so smart? I mean, look at all the technology we have. It's an important question. I don't mean to sound like I'm mocking you. I hope it doesn't come across that way. But it's an important uh, question to consider as we approach this study of the book of Colossians. It's important because here is a book that addresses exactly what we need today. And it's because of that I want to take you with whatever time we have to uh, study carefully this brief epistle. And today we're just going to kind of dip our toe in it. It's going to be a, a bit of an introduction. And I want to look at really four things. You have an outline in your bulletin. And that's four motivating reasons why we should study the book of Colossians. Can I tell you why? Because there's a reason why I want to go through this. And the reason is so that we're able to diligently consider and apply its message, which is meant for us today. All right? So turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Colossians. I hope you have your, your Bible with you and you're ready to study it. Colossians chapter 1. The first motivating reason that I want to show you is of why we should study Colossians is that the book of Colossians, and here's your blank on your outline. If you're a blank filler in her, this is important to you, so pay attention, okay? The book of Colossians is, ready? Relevant for today. There was your blank. Did you get it? Relevant? All right. Are we excited about blanks? I'm the kind of guy I need to have my blanks filled. I'll be honest with you, okay? One of the reasons why Colossians is so relevant is because man has the same basic struggles today as he's always had, right? I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. Didn't the writer of Ecclesiastes tell us that? I mean, you say, well, what do we, what do we struggle with? You know, as a generation, we struggle with anger, right? Some people struggle, struggle with anger. Well, there was a guy named Moses who struggled, right, with that. Uh, what about greed? Well, sure, there's all kinds of guys in the Word of God who struggle with that, and there's answers to that. Guys like Achan, guys like Laban, right? How about lust? Remember a fellow by the name of David? And on and on we could go. Idolatry, you can look at the Israelites. Uh, lying, you can talk about Rachel, and on and on. All these issues are the same, and the Word of God gives us ways to understand man's heart and see how man can be transformed and changed. Isn't that good news? Are you excited about the fact that our God is not only powerful enough to save us, but also powerful enough to transform us? Is that cool or what? I love that. You see, man struggles with these things and others as much from the leather seats of his BMW as he did perched upon the top of a hump of a camel. It's the same uh, depravity of man's heart. And Colossians comes in and deals with some very contemporary issues that we face today. You see, we live in a day that it, we're all about science and technology, right? Did you know I saw a stat, 95% of the scientists who ever lived, live in our generation, 95%. That's interesting to me. 
But because of that, you know, uh, there's all kinds of advances. Things are going on. Technology is always moving forward. Uh, every time you flip on the TV, there's some kind of new discovery from microbiology to astrophysics. It's all changing all the time. I mean, if you look back just, what, 40 years ago this, when, when the Apollo missions were going, a little over 40 years ago, uh, the Apollo guidance computer was two feet by one feet by six inches thick, about the size of a piece of luggage, okay? And you carry in your hand probably, like this iPhone right here, has tons more technology than that thing had, and they went to the moon with it, right? I mean, this weighs like 3.9 ounces. That thing weighed 70 pounds. This thing has the ability to hold up to 64 gigabyte of, of, of information. The entire capacity of the Apollo, Apollo guidance control was 2,048 words. Words. Amazing the changes that we see uh, going around. And because of that, people can, there are several things that can happen. It's a generation that likes to ask a lot of questions, okay? So we don't just take anything at face value, and we tend to be a little bit skeptical, okay? And so uh, there, there's questions that, that need to be answered. And I believe that the Word of God very clearly gives those answers, all right? I believe that they are accepted by faith. There is an element of faith, just like there is with science. But uh, there is also the, the, some very wonderful answers to questions that most people are asking, either overtly or covertly. Is there a God? This answers that. How does he relate to his universe? The book of Colossians answers that. Is he a part of the universe or is he uh, the creator of the universe? The book of Colossians answers that. Did the, did the universe evolve or was it created? I believe the book of Colossians answers that. And it answers these questions by showing Jesus Christ as God, okay, and then telling us things. Like in Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him, and he's the goal, for him. That's pretty cool, right? Uh, we live in a day of uh, ecumenism. Uh, many are seeking to uh, bring all the world's religions together and try to, try to make them all kind of get along and work together. There's more and more of a push towards a one-world kind of religion. Some seek to, in our lifetime, we've seen them seeking to uh, take Protestantism and Catholicism and, and merge those together, things like the ECT document uh, 10, 15 years ago. But it's not just within, quote-unquote, Christianity circles, but it's Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, all this movement towards let's put aside our differences and anything that can be divisive, and can't we all, in the words of the great theologian Rodney King, can't we all just get along? So we throw out the divisive and we keep what we can agree upon and we live together in a harmonious, blissful little bus ride to hell. It doesn't work that way. And it becomes like some sort of odd uh, mythological multi-headed creature uh, where many seek a God of their own making mixed up with parts of Christ and parts of Rama and, and Vishtu and Zoroaster and let's add a little Muhammad and a, and a dash of Buddha and let's come together to something that we just kind of call a God of our own making. And all that is is good old-fashioned idolatry. It's not biblical truth. Colossians deals with this error in Colossians 1 verse 18. If you look down on it, it tells us that he, talking about Christ, is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn or preeminent one from the dead so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. So it answers the issues of 
of questions and answers to the issues that we run up to and, and ecumenism. You know, we also live in a day that's full of individualism, kind of a lone ranger mentality even within the church, a postmodern world that, that where absolutes are denied, where, where truth is considered relative. Well, does it work for you? Okay, that's your truth, right? Does it, that work for you? Okay, that's your truth. Um, in fact, the only time that a person can be intolerant anymore is when he's dealing with a person that claims there is absolute truth, right? To claim that one religion or one view is correct is considered the ultimate of intolerance and bigotry. And within that kind of mentality, they say, well, you know, Jesus had some good things to teach, and he's a good teacher, like Muhammad was a good teacher, or Moses was a good teacher, and let's just kind of put him in the category of just a teacher. Colossians answers that as well. It gives us the true identity of Christ. He's far, by the way, from being just another religious leader, right? He is, the, Colossians tells us in 1.15, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the preeminent one of all creation, in whom, he tells us a little later in Colossians 2.9, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells within him in bodily form. That's who he is. And as God in human flesh, Jesus' word is authoritative, it is absolute, and it is exclusively true. We also live in a day of pragmatism. We, we want to know not so much is it true, but we want to know does it work, right? I don't really care if it's true or not, just does it work? Will it fix whatever I'm facing? What difference does it make in my life? It's a question that's not bad in and of itself, but if you're willing to say the end justifies the means, and so we take a path that is different from what God's word says in order to get to a place that we think we want to be at, we're missing out, aren't we? Because God has a place, and along the path of truth, he takes you to where you need to be, and you know what? You may not know where you need to be, right? So you need to just follow his character, his attributes, his word. But, you know, does it, does it make a difference? Colossians answers that as well. Can Christ really change lives? And we see this even in the church today, unfortunately. Increasingly, Christ saves, but he doesn't necessarily transform or change. Have you noticed that? There's a Christ who come to him for salvation, but you know what? Don't worry about the fact that nothing's ever changing in your life because you know, that's just the way it is. Well, there are th our God is a transforming God. He's not just powerful and mighty to save, but he is mighty to save in the biblical sense, which is, not, which is all the way from election to glorification, right? All the way along the path. And he is able to transform us. Well, we will not be perfect, perfect in this life, right? Amen? We are increasingly being conformed into the image of his son. And that's a good place for an amen too, by the way. So can Christ really change lives? Colossians 1.22, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and above reproach. Isn't that good news? Can, can Christ give peace? Can he give joy? Can he give happiness? Can he give stability? Colossians 2, 6 and 7, as therefore you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Check this out. Does this sound like stability? Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. That's a great position, isn't it? Does Christ give you hope? Does it give meaning and purpose to this life? Colossians 
Chapter 2, verse 10 says, In him, in Christ, you have been made complete. Awesome. Nothing lacking. You know, we also live in a day of messed up relationships, and everybody wants to know, how can I get along with my spouse? (laughs) How can I get along with my kids, my boss? Or for that matter, how can I even get along with myself, right? Colossians gives us answers to that. That's what Colossians 3 and 4 is all about. It helps us to understand how the theology of Colossians 1 and the warnings of Colossians 2 play out in the, the intimate relationships of life, beginning with yourself and moving outward from there to all the relationships that you come into contact with. Finally, we live in an uncertain age, don't we? There is a heightened interest in the end times. Environmentalists are sounding the alarm to the end of the planet. Wars and threats of wars unsettle us. Books on the apocalypse, the end of the world, are bestsellers these days. Movies like After Earth, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, World War Z. All these movies are are, are like the ones that are coming out and everybody's interested in what's going to happen. Not long ago in Uganda, a cult convinced that the end of the world was here, sealed 500 members of their organization into their church and burned them alive because that's the way the world should end for them. It's time. We need to be transferred to the new world. Before that, it was Jonestown, Heaven's Gate down in San Diego, you know, the news is full of all these examples of things like that. It's unnecessary because the word of God in Colossians here addresses our end as believers. It won't end with global warming, nuclear destruction, or a meteor hitting us, but it will end with the return of Christ in his glory. For believers, Colossians tells us in chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. That's awesome. So Colossians here is is a letter, and even though this letter was written 2,000 years ago, it was written about 60 to 62 AD, and even though it was written from a prison cell in Rome, and even though it was written by a Jewish author by the name of Paul, it has much that deals with the relevant issues for our time. And I guarantee you that if you pour yourself into this book as we study it over the next months, that your life will be changed. I promise you that. It's not me promising. It's the word of God doing what it does, just like Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, right? Where we have a renewing of our mind and we are being transformed. That's the first motivating reason why to study Colossians. Give me, let me give you number two. It's on your outline as well. Are you ready with your pencils? The blank's about to be filled. The second motivating reason why we should study Colossians is that the book of Colossians is reliable for today. Reliable. It's reliable for today. Look at the first two verses of Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now Paul starts off right at the beginning. He introduces himself. That's the way letters worked uh, in, in that day. And right now we write, dear, you know, dear, if I write a let, note to my wife, I write, dear Kim, And then if she didn't recognize my handwriting, which I would hope she would, she thumbs back if I were actually writing letters and to the last page and you you scroll down on your email and say, who's this from, right? Well, they start off, it's really great because you knew who you were dealing with right from the beginning. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And right there, he gives the foundation for his message, okay? He says, Paulos, apostolos, Paul, 
uh, apposition equals apostle. In other words, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the word apostle means the sent one. It's a messenger. It's an envoy, something like that, an ambassador. And the word's used three different ways, really, in the Bible. And people get confused about this. And let me just take a little time and explain that to you. There's three ways. The first one is it's used in, apostolos is used in a general sense, which is just like sending somebody. You know, if I'm going to, Kim, would you mind getting me a, a cup of water? And I send her to go do that. That's apostolos in the, the general sense, right? Then it's used kind of in a, a, semi, uh, a semi-technical sense of a Christian who's been given a particular mission for a short-term mission, okay? And that's, that's another use of it that we see in the Word of God. And then there's a, a, one that's technical, and it's the idea of the office of apostle. If you want to, that's apostle with a capital A, okay? That's when the, the, the disciples became apostles, right? Uh, Paul here is an apostle. It's one of the 12 or Paul. Now, now, some would question whether Paul really belongs in this group, because if you remember, there was a fellow who betrayed, do you remember this story? The fellow betrayed Jesus Christ? Ju- Judas was his name, I think. I don't know. I should have studied for that, maybe. Uh, yeah, Judas, that was his name. He was gone, right? He hung himself. The potter's filled. You remember the whole story, right? And then the, 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 the small group of believers gathers to, to pick a replacement for him. And there are some people who say, well, you know, Peter and the guys really shouldn't have done that because Paul's coming and now there's 13 in a way. Those people like to fill in blanks, okay? It's only 12, you know, they're trying to mess with it in a certain way. And so they got up and they, they got together and they said, well, we got a choice. We got a choice between Matthias, right? Or, or Joseph called Barsabbas called also Justice. Now, right there, that's probably why he didn't win, because he had a lot of aliases. He's not very trustworthy. No, not really. What they did was they cast the lot, okay? And they decided the lot fell to this fellow by the name of Matthias. Now, everybody jumps on board here in the church age, and they say, well, they should have let the Holy Spirit guide them instead of doing this whole lot thing. Problem? Anybody? Has the Holy Spirit come yet in Acts 1? When does it come? Somebody tell me. I'll give you a hint. It's after one and before three. Anybody? Good. You guys are good students. Acts two, right? Uh, The lot was the Old Testament method by which the Holy Spirit uh, led. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord because they knew that the Lord could roll that lot just the way it needed to be, right? We don't do that anymore because we have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God that guides us. We're not going around and casting lots. Your elders aren't getting together and throwing down lots to try to figure out what's next, right? They also say, by the way, you know, Matthias was never mentioned again. See, I told you, Peter and those guys, they really messed that up. Well, what are you going to do with Simon the Zealot and others that were never mentioned again either? You know, that's really not the deal, okay? This is what happened. This is God's word, describe it. And there's nothing condemning that in the word of God. So I think we need not also. Besides, if Paul needed a slot so it could be 12 and fill in the blank properly, James has got beheaded in Acts chapter 12 and that could have worked it all out, right? Oh, there's an opening. The criteria that they used in Acts 1 was it's necessary that, of the, it's, that this person be cho- chosen of the men who have a communist all the time that the Lord Jesus went out and among us, okay? This is the, a guy who was with us from the beginning, saw what Jesus did, heard his teaching, all that kind of stuff. Paul's apostleship is a little bit different in that whatever Paul may have seen during that time, he certainly wasn't there as a follower, right? He was there as an accuser. 
And and his apostleship comes directly from Jesus Christ, right? On that road to Damascus. Do you remember that story? Turn turn to your Bibles. Let me just hit the high points on that to Acts chapter 9. Because Saul, that's that's Paul's name before uh, he was saved, Saul was, was not a guy who was promoting the church. You understand this, right? He was a guy who was trying with every ounce of his fiber to wipe the church out. Look at chapter 9, verse 1 of Acts. Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and he went up to the high priest, and he asked for letters uh, from the high priest to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he can find anybody belonging to the way, that's Christianity, right? both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, so he's been doing this in Jerusalem and the low-hanging fruit's gone and he's having trouble really getting anybody else, but he's so fired up about this that he's ready pre-trains, pre-cars and all that kind of stuff to take a group of a, a posse up to Damascus in Syria, right? And, and find them there. This guy is very, very passionate about his work. So he goes to the high priest, the high priest gives him a letter and he, and he goes and it comes about verse three, he's, as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus and suddenly, I love this because you know what? Man lays down his plans, right? But God orders his steps. I mean, Saul has one thing on his mind and if you think you're adding anything to your salvation like was talked about earlier, you can just forget about it because guess what? You, me, the rest of us, we were all Saul's, okay? It may not have been playing out by going and getting people arrested to take them to Jerusalem or something like that, but we were so into ourselves and our depression and all that kind of stuff that we were only about ourselves, even when we thought we were doing good. <laughs> so here it is. He's on the road to Damascus to wipe some of these people, to get, bind them up, take them back, embarrass them, whatever. He could cause them any kind of grief he could. And suddenly God steps in, right? And a light shone from heaven suddenly. And it flashed around him. Verse four, and he fell to the ground, a proper, appropriate response. And he heard a voice saying to him, oh man, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting those people in Damascus? Is that what he said? No, no, read the word, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. Boom. By the way, Saul, Saul, when you see those two names, God's getting people's attention. I love that. He is so getting, he's getting people. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground at the burning bush. I'm about to call you to something. Abraham, Abraham, don't you dare harm that child of yours, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise, enter the city, and it must be told what you must do. So he does that. He goes into the city, into Damascus, and he has a prayer meeting, right? And he gets to praying, and he's just waiting for the Lord to direct next. Verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, remember the word of God's not completed, and not Ananias, and he said, behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias is going to come in, lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Now, if you're Ananias, what's your first thought? Saul? Really? Saul, the guy with the papers coming from Jerusalem, the guy who is breathing threats? This Saul? You want me to go to his house and say, hey, I'm a believer. I'm here to help you. How would you have done that? 
Lord, you need to open a bigger door. Is that the way you'd handle it? Well, Ananias was concerned. Look at verse 13. But Ananias answered and he said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how he did harm to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind up all who call upon your name. What do you see missing from that sentence? So, Lord, please don't let me. He didn't say that, did he? He just said, I've heard about him. Strengthen me. Help my unbelief, maybe, you know. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And at that point, my friends, on that road to Damascus, Saul becomes Paul, the guy who writes our letter. And instead of going with all his passion and all his desires that were in a, in a, in a lustful, wrong way, right? Now he, he is still, as God made him, a passionate uh, man who, who's, who's, who's all about what he's going to do. But he now has turned his direction from persecutor of the church to a promoter of the church, right? And so here he's picking up pens, as he has with many other letters that we have in the New Testament. He says, hey, I've got some things that the Spirit has breathed into me that need to be said so that the church can be built up so that the church can be strengthened. And he did, as it said in the verse I didn't read there at the very end, he did have to suffer many things. Like the brothers and sisters that you were talking about earlier in West Africa who just rebuilt the church. What do we do? We run into problems. It's like, well, this must not be the will of God, right? I must be doing something wrong. Somebody else must be doing something wrong. Let's just... Let's figure out what's wrong and fix it because if, if we're following God, everything will be perfect, right? Right? That's the message of a lot of stuff you hear on the radio and everything else nowadays, isn't it? But the Bible's very, very clear. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. Oh, man, I love that one. It's, you know, it just cracks me up that, that we're just sitting there going, you know, everything should be perfect. It wasn't for Moses. It wasn't for Daniel. It wasn't for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It wasn't for Isaiah. It certainly wasn't for Jeremiah, who was known as the weeping prophet, right? Who, who preached his entire career and nobody came to know the Lord. How long would you have stayed in that ministry? Pick an, a disciple or an apostle and try to find me one who had a simple road. Whether it be John, who was the only one that wasn't martyred, according to church tradition, right? But was put on an island. But regardless of the pain and the suffering, and you sing so well about it today, God is still turning that pain into gain, isn't he? God is still working in those situations and molding and shaping us and those around us and furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ as we stay faithful to his word and his truth. Simple, isn't it? It is simple. You say, well, it's not really easy. No, I didn't say it was easy. I said it was simple. I can understand it, and then I fight it, (laughs) right? It's simple. So Paul... Now Paul has this apostleship that is directly from Christ. Galatians 1.1 says, Paul, an apostle not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. That's his credentials who raised him from the dead. And that's the same as our text, right? Paul, an apostle, what does it say? By the will of God. That's what God called. That's what God did. 
and that's where he is. And, or in the words of Acts 9 that we read, what the Lord said to Ananias, go, he is a chosen instrument. I've chosen him, and an instrument's for a task, right? And I'm, put, I'm putting him forward. He's coming with authority because he's going to be before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. And with that chosen instrument, with that authority, with that God-breathed word being penned, we find reliability. The author's Paul, God's chosen apostle, a man moved by the Holy Spirit to write this epistle, a man with authority to speak on behalf of God here. And for this reason, again, it's reliable for today. Okay, so the book Colossians, what do we say? Was relevant for today. That's blank number one. Reliable for today. That's blank number two. Then the third motivating reason to study Colossians is that we should study it because it was recorded for believers. Okay, this was written for us. Recorded your blank, by the way. Verse two, he writes it to the faithful saint, the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Now he writes this to this little church, okay, in a small town that quite honestly would be all but forgotten if it weren't for this letter. I mean, there's really nothing to this town that would commend itself to get a letter from, from God in a sense, right? J.B. Lightfoot, the great commentator, calls this the most unimportant town that Paul ever wrote to. The Colossian church, by the way, was not founded by Paul. It had never even been visited by Paul, although he hoped to come and see him. But he cares about him, so he takes a pen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and writes to him. Most likely, the church was started by a fellow by the name of Epaphras who heard Paul in Ephesus and went back, just like we're called to do, he went back and he gathered, he shared the gospel. A group of saints raised up, and that became, in his hometown, the church at Colossae. He was concerned uh, when, uh, with this group of believers. Later, he, he became, Epaphras became concerned about the dangers of wrong thinking that was infiltrating the Colossian church. And so it was, it was Epaphras, as we'll find out in this letter, who, who ends up journeying all the way from Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, to Rome to see Paul to express his concerns, get some help, seek advice, whatever. Talk to him about it. <clears throat> And that's what brought about this letter that we have here. And Paul's aim here is to provide the, the Christian antidote to the errors in doctrine and practice being taught by some at Colossae. And so Paul wrote this, this great epistle which communicates the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. And he sends this epistle along with two others, Ephesians and Philemon, but in the hands of a guy by the name of Tychicus, Okay. Can you imagine me and Tychicus? You had three books of the Bible, the autographer, the only copies, and you're carrying them across. Yeah, you're not going to have a ship. Right? You're, you're going you're to be taken care of along the way, right? Very precious cargo. And he sends this to the believers at Colossae. And really from the short de- description we hear uh, of these, uh, we see here in our verse of, of, of these believers, we see four characteristics of a true Christian, okay? The first one is that the true believer, it says they're brethren, okay? They're part of a brotherhood, a part of a fellowship, part of a church. They're begotten, they're brothers because they're begotten of the same father, okay? You tracking with me on that? They're part of a church, that's what he's talking about, he says, in Colossae. In other words, they're not forsaking their own assembling together as is the habit of son, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. And this is a mark of one who has encountered Christ and who's, who's been saved. They want to be together with other believers. 
First John 2.19 says they went out from us because they were not really of us. Because if they, if they would have been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not all of us. So right off the bat, one of the marks, four marks, four characteristics of a true believer is they're Adelphos, they're, they're brothers. <clears throat> we see a second one here. Not only is a true Christian part of a body of believers, but he's also holy, set apart, and sanctified. He writes it to the saints. <clears throat> That's a Greek word, hagias, and it means to be set apart. It means to be holy, sanctified. And so the idea is there they have been saved for a purpose, set apart for a purpose. And they're, they're being used for special service. That's what the word saint means. Okay, another characteristic is that the true believer is faithful or believing, pistos. Uh, <clears throat> they couldn't be set apart if they hadn't had faith, right, and believed. Because that's how we're saved by faith, by grace, right? So, so they've been set apart uh, by the grace of God and have become faithful, been imparted the gift of faith, and they believe the gospel of Christ, and now they're following through and living by that same faith, being trustworthy, steadfast, faithful ones, which is another way that could be translated as well. By the way, when we're talking about the book of Colossians and all the richness there is there, can I just tell you that it starts, you have to have that relationship with Jesus Christ first. Apart from that, where you know, when it says, you know, more to kill, consider yourself as dead to anger, wrath, malice, slander, those kind of things, impurity, you can't do that on your own. You know that, right? The only way you can do that is if you have a personal, uh, vibrant relationship with Christ where, where God has, like Saul on that road to Damascus, he is, he's, you were blind, and then he removes the blindness. He gives you his spirit. He saves you when you believe in Jesus Christ and take him as your Lord and Savior, Right? And then from there, the riches can be mined. But if you're sitting here today and you're going, you know, I, I, I don't know anything about that. Can I just tell you this, that, that it starts there, that, that you need to understand that you, just like me, just like everybody else sitting around you, we're sinners, right? We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We don't have any hope. And we can't save ourselves. We can't be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. We can't live up to his standard. And he will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. That's what the Bible tells us. Exodus 34, 7, that's the way it is. Uh, you can't do good enough. It's not a set of scales where, well, I did a lot of bad stuff, but from now on, I'm putting a line in the sand. I'm going to do good stuff from here on out. And we're <clears throat> picturing God as a judge with scales, right? And I did all this bad stuff. It's heavy over here. If I can just do enough good stuff, maybe I can bounce it out and get into heaven. That isn't the way it works. You could never, I could never do enough good stuff for that to happen. You understand that, right? The, my best deeds apart from Christ are nothing but filthy rags. What I need and what you need is for God to intervene. That's the whole reason Jesus came, right? He sent his son who lived among us, born of a virgin, lived the perfect life, was tempted in life, was tempted in like manner as us, yet without sin, right? He was tempted more than we were because he resisted to the point of what? Blood. He gave his life a perfect uh, specimen, a perfect being, a perfect one who lived according to God's plan and his character and he gave his life, why? To pay the penalty of death. Well, he didn't know that debt, did he? The wages of sin is death. He didn't know that. He did that for you and for me. So if you're sitting here today, understand you're a sinner and you can't pay your own bill. 
and you need somebody else to pay it. And that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. And so you understand who he is, what he did, and you put your faith in him, saying, I, I believe I'm a sinner. I repent of my sins. I put my faith in Jesus Christ, and I will follow him the rest of the days of my life as he so gives me the grace. So if you're here and you don't know Christ, let this be the day when you do that, all right? And then when we get in the rest of this book, you're going to get more stuff out of it, okay? For the rest of you who've done that, the, the mind goes deep here, okay? But our calling as believers who have been set apart is to be also faithful and believing as we continue on. And then the fourth thing, uh, part of a fellowship, holy, faithful, and then look at it. <clears throat> a true believer is positioned, it says, in Christ. That's a special union. They were not only believers in Colossae, but they were also in Christ. And I love that because it's kind of this dual position, and you understand this, right, as a believer, that not only <coughs> are you in Garden Grove, but you're also in Christ. And you're kind of like his ambassador to Garden Grove now in the area where you may work or whatever. And this is it. It's kind of this dual citizenship in a sense. Dual position is probably a better word of being in Christ. And then the question is, you know, how does that affect us? Well, if I'm in Christ, I need to be in the world, but not of the world, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? And I love the, the story. You ever heard of a water beetle? Water beetle? This little guy, <clears throat> he, he lives underwater most of the time. And he does that. He's, he's not, uh, he doesn't have gills and stuff, okay? But he lives under there because he, when he goes underwater, he has a little kind of atmosphere of air that circles his body. In fact, he goes down and lives a lot of the time in the mud, inside this little protective layer of air. And he breathes, and he can live underwater for most of his life that way. Well, that's kind of, a, I think, an interesting illustration of us, <clears throat> in that we are in a situation where all around us we're being pulled and pushed all different kinds of directions. The world is trying to, to soil you or stain you or something like that, but you're in Christ, and you're different, and you're protected because your life, as we'll see later in Colossians, is hidden with Christ in God, <laughs> all right? And so we live unstained by that as we follow him, as he protects us, as, as his grace is pouring out in our life. So Paul greets these true believers <clears throat> with, <clears throat> with these beautiful words, and then he just gives them this short little uh, greeting. It's really the, one of the shortest of, of all his epistles. And he says this, he says, grace to you, you see it there, and peace from God our Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. The Colossian church was Gentile and Jewish both, as many of the churches were. Remember, Paul would go into the synagogues first. And so he greets them with this standard greeting. Grace, Kairos, right, is the Greek greeting. And Shalom, peace, is the Hebrew greeting. And he, he makes this great blend of these two components uh, of the Christian life where you have grace, the foundation of our, our salvation and the, the way that we could live on in this world and peace, which is the unexplainable, invaluable quality of life that we enjoy. Grace and peace to you. And, and he names the source there. I hope you notice that, of that grace and peace. He says, from God our Father. <clears throat> now, if you got the King James, you also see, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, okay? But it's not in the best manuscripts. And it's probably just a scribal edition <clears throat> because he says that other places. It's not a contradiction. Don't feel like that. But it, he, here he just says, from God our Father. Now, that's it. And, and <clears throat> like the Colossians, like any other Christian, we have our same spiritual father. And that's your emphasis here. Our father, <clears throat> who is the source of grace and peace. 
And so we're, the picture is we're being bound up in his loving care and protection. I love that. Do you remember back in, uh, go back to Luke chapter 11. And just so you understand, Father, because we come from a lot of different backgrounds, I know. And some of your fathers, you may not, some of you may not have known your fathers. Some of you may have crummy fathers. Some of you may have fathers where you go, I hope I live like he did for Christ. You know, there's all different kinds. But let me just, so in case there's any kind of misconception of father here, I want you to understand the concept of father, that the way the Bible talks about it. <coughs> Luke chapter 11, <clears throat> look at, down to verse 11. Now, the context here is the question's been asked by the disciples, Lord, will you teach us to pray? We want to know how to pray. And so he goes and he, he you know, the Lord's prayer, and uh, he kind of builds that. And then he comes down to verse 11, and he says, he's talking about how you're asking your father, right? And he's talked about if you ask, you will, you will, it'll be given to you, seek, and you'll find, knock, it'll be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, everyone who knocks it shall be open. By the way, that's what the Bible says. Very interesting. A lot of people want to argue with that. Then verse 11, he says, Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Now what kind of father would this be, right? Daddy, picture this, it's Christmas time. or what? It's just a weekend. Daddy, will you take me to Red Lobster? You know, I want to get some fish or Long John Silver's or whatever. You know, Dad, can I have fish? Because he's talking about food. He's not at Petco, right? He's not saying, I want, a, I want a pet. Can you get me a fish? And he's like, no, a snake's cool. Watch it eat a mouse. You know, that kind of thing. It's not that. He's like, I want something to eat. And he says, can I give you, I want, I'd like a fish. And, and Dad's not going to give him a rattlesnake, right? That would be a very poor father. Would you agree with that? Here, open it up. So I don't, you know, <laughs> You know, it wouldn't be good. And continuing on, in case he didn't give it was food, or if he has asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? Again, it's just not going to happen. This would be like a really, really crummy father. Verse 13, and, here's his, and he makes this conclusion. He says, if you then, what does he say? Being evil, that's the word paneros, we get our word pornography from, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, check it out. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? <laughs> In other words, if you're even a crummy dad who wants to, you know, for whatever selfish reasons, or whatever, he's going to give good gifts to his children. But and the argument is from the lesser to the greater, okay? If this one's like that, how much more so will your heavenly father, who is perfect, who is generous, who longs to open the windows of heaven and pour out, who when you ask wants to give, who when you seek, he wants to be found. He's not that uncle who's like, see if you can get it out of my hand, and the kid's just sitting there trying to grab it, and he keeps moving it, which hands it in, you know, hide and seek and all that kind of it's not like that at all. Our God is there. He is hungry. He sent his son so that you can be saved. He didn't just sit back and wait for us to go, hey, could you send your son so, we, so I can be saved? He didn't even wait for that. He took the initiative from before the foundations of the earth and laid this out because he is a good father who is the source of grace, who is the source of peace. That's a great father. That's our father, if you're in Christ. Now, if our father's that kind of father, which he is, and we have needs and failures, and we're struggling with situations, right? Just like we talked about earlier, lust or anger or greed or those kind of things. 
What do you think the Father's advice would be to us? Would it be good advice, helpful advice? Or would he just say, well, sorry, you're stuck. The problems that we face today are the same that the Colossians faced. And as believers, here's the deal. Because we have a great Father, we need to carefully heed what God, our loving Father, has given for us in instruction in this area. That's why the pen is being lifted. That's why the letter was wrote. So it's, it's written for believers, okay? It, it, it's reliable for today. It's relevant for today. But let me give you the fourth motivating reason to study the book of Colossians. The fourth and final motivating reason here, this book, if you study it, will revolutionize your life. Okay? That's your R. That's your blank. Get it written down so we can talk. It will revolutionize your life. This book will change your life. Paul arranges his book in a marvelous way, by the way. He starts off in four chapters, okay, Colossians four chapters. The first chapter is doctrine, all right? And he just starts off and he talks about the preeminence of Christ. He states that, and, 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 and it's, it's beautiful what he does. He sets the doctrinal foundation. This is really important, guys, because what most people want when they come to hear a message is, can you just tell me four steps on how I can get this better? You know what I'm saying? Give me four steps. I don't really want to hear your doctrine. I don't want to get through all that. No, no, no. You can't do the application without the first having theology, all right? Duty follows doctrine, okay? And you see this all throughout. Look at the book of Ephesians, six chapters, one through three, doctrine, four through six. Here's the application, okay? Romans. He goes all the way through 11 with doctrine, and then he goes, woo, he just gets all excited, has a great benediction. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, in the beginning of, of chapter 12, and from 12 to 16, he's saying, here's how it pl- plays out. And you see this time and time again, laying down the foundation of truth, and that's why we are blown around so much by every wind of doctrine is that we don't have the foundation of truth. And so we're only responding to how-tos, and when the the preacher or the teacher or whoever listened to says how to this and it's not biblical. We don't have anything to compare it to, you know? And you should be checking everything to the word of God and knowing, having a strong biblical theology from which then to make applications and to evaluate applications that somebody else may be giving you. And this is what he does here. He starts off with doctrine, okay? The first two chapters are really doctrine. The first one's on the preeminent of Christ, who Christ is, all that. You're gonna love this, okay? Because it's all about our great and mighty Savior and Lord. And then chapter two, he's still dealing with doctrine, but he, he talks about the dangers that they're facing. Because this is what Epaphras has come back and has told uh, Paul, here's the things they're facing. And some of them are falling, some of them are being distracted, this kind of thing. And so the, the preeminence of Christ is then defended in chapter two. And Paul begins to deal with some very real threats to the doctrine of Christ, things like legalism, ritualism, mysticism, asceticism, that's what he's going to deal with in chapter 2. Then by the time you get to chapter 3 and 4, that's then your therefore chapters, and that's the duty, that's the preeminence of Christ, then shown, played out in people's lives. It's, it, it answers the question, how does this understanding of truth affect, how should it affect a man's life? And chapter three and four are like ripples in a, in a still pond. If you were to drop a, a stone or a pebble into it, you know how concentric circles move away from that? He starts at the, the place closest to you and he says, hey, your life, this is how it should be impacted. 
Then he goes out another circle and he says, how should your relationship with other believers be impacted? Then he goes out and says, what about your spouse? What about your kids? What about the people you work with? All the way out to everybody by the time you get to chapter four. That's cool. You may be thinking, why do you put other believers before my family? It's interesting, isn't it? Because there is a sense where uh, I have a deeper relationship with other believers than I do with lost people who have the same blood as me sometimes, right? You may be aware of that in your own situations. But he says, this is how this doctrine impacts you. It goes to every, it infiltrates every corner of your life and every relationship that you can possibly, possibly think of. And it's very, very practical stuff. So if you're here and you're like dealing like most of us are with the issues of life and you're struggling maybe with doubt or you're struggling with doctrinal issues or you're distracted by some rabbit trail or you're beset by some kind of personal sin or you're troubled in a relationship with your spouse or you're troubled in your relationship with your kids or somebody at work or whatever, then let me just tell you this. Colossians is the book for you. This thing is going to have some great stuff that will revolutionize your life, stuff that will change your life. So it's relevant for today. It's reliable for today. It was written for believers, and it will revolutionize your life. You see, there's, there's nothing more tragic, I believe, than to have all the resources you need and not take advantage of them in that time of need. There was a woman in West Palm Beach, Florida, who died alone at the age of 71. It took some time for them to find her because she was alone. Nobody seemed to care about her. She was just a lonely widow lady. After she was discovered, the coroner did his autopsy, as they do when somebody dies by themselves, and the report was tragic. She died of malnutrition in her home. The dear dear old lady, when they weighed her, she weighed 50 pounds, 50 pounds. My arm weighs more than that. Investigators who came into her home, it looked like something out of that TV show Hoarders, right? I mean, it was a veritable pig pen, the biggest mess that you can ever imagine. The woman was known a little bit in the community because she would go door to door to her neighbors and beg for food. She would go down to the Salvation Army and beg for clothes. From all outward appearances, she was a penniless recluse and a pitiful and forgotten widow. As they began to dig through her belongings and just literally shoveling through it, down towards the bottom, they found two keys that they tracked to two safety deposit boxes at two different banks. The first one they opened up, it had 700 shares of AT&T stock certificates and hundreds of other valuable certificates. It also included a stack of cash worth, the cash amount alone was about $200,000. They went to the second box. It didn't have any certificates or anything like that. All it had in it was uh, $600,000 in cash. All in all, the whole thing was worth over a million dollars. You see, there was no need for that woman to die. There, there was no need for her to die of malnutrition. She had all the resources at her disposal. 
Too many professing Christians are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine when they have at their fingertips the very instruction that God gives us that is reliable, that is relevant, that's recorded for believers, and it will revolutionize your life. Because of that, we should carefully study the book of Colossians and see what God will each, what he will have applied to our lives. Now I want to challenge you to one little thing here in closing. During our time together, I'll be here for a little while, over the summer, I think, and so uh, I want you to just uh, commit to reading the book of Colossians every day, or five times a week. That gives you two days where you just didn't love the Lord. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> right? Okay? It, you go, a whole book? I got to read a whole book? What are you, my teacher? No, yes, but <laughs> 15 to 20 minutes, an average reader can read the book of Colossians, four short chapters. Read it every day. Let it uh, kind of be like a sponge. Take it in. And then as we meet together, it'll be even richer. All right? And we'll see what God does. And then we'll look back, say, when we get down the road further and say, okay, what did God do? And here's the deal. God's going to do something if you apply yourself to it and if you uh, seek to use his means of grace in your own life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. I thank you for each of these believers and this fellowship here. Lord, I pray for your blessing upon them. I pray for them that they would uh, commit to, to wanting to read your word and study it. And Lord, as we meet together and study the book of Colossians, I pray that it would powerfully interact with our lives and change and mold and shape us to be conformed more into the image of your son. In Christ's name, amen.